Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. All right, today we're welcoming John Murphy. He's an Emmy award-winning writer and producer of Henry Ford's Innovation Nation. He's a radio personality of top-rated morning drive radio shows for more than two decades. And he's the current host of the podcast, Across the Dinerverse, where John is searching for the heart and soul of America one diner at a time. And he interviews everyday people about their lives, their community, and how they feel about America. Additionally, John's also produced and directed for HBO, A&E, Discovery, Sci-Fi, and Stars. John was born in San Diego, California, but he considers Nebraska his home. He's married to his wife, Dana, and they have two daughters, Taylor and Cameron. John, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. You sound very excited. Yeah. We've known each other for 29 years. Yeah. We've had a lot of, um, we've grown up together in, as it relates to marriage and raising daughters. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think we ever really delved into deeply was more than surface level was more in depth. How do, how do, how does success and leadership happen really on an Emmy award winning show? And so I'd I'd love to really guide the conversation Mm -hmm. to that. And I think maybe you could spend a little bit of time saying, hey, I started here, came up to here, and then we'll get into specifically on Innovation Nation. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, it really started for me in high school. as a part-time job in high school. Hmm. The manager of, and I grew up in a very small town in Nebraska. It's called McCook, Nebraska. And there's like 8,400 people there, right? And this is, I grew up in the 70s, a child of the 70s. And I... (laughs) we had two radio stations in McCook. There was KICX and KRBL. And they were both, well, KRBL was a 5,000-watt daytime-only radio station, and KICX was a 1,000-watt daytime-only radio station, which means that when the sun went down in the winter, the station signed off the air at 4.15 or 5.15 in the afternoon during the winter. So he had no, no radio. There was no, nothing to listen to. You know, that, that, goodbye, everybody. So I'm in high school. I've got the basic classes. And the station manager was friends with my English teacher. And he goes, you got any kids who get some personality or who are interesting that might want a part-time job in radio? I have an opening for some weekend shifts. And the teacher mentioned my name. The, yeah, John does. And so he's, he's a, my teacher told me to stay after class, and he goes, uh, I want you to call this guy here. He runs KICX Radio. He's looking for some part-time work. I think he'd be good for that. I thought, wow, that'd be, that's interesting. So I made the call, and I got hired for the job, and I started doing radio, and I was terrible. You're 17 years old on the radio, scared out of your mind. You know, I feel very comfortable in talking from this microphone now, but at the time— it was terrifying. And I actually had to play physical records 
So I actually had to take these 45 records with a little hole in the middle, put it on a turntable, back cue it, and then time the firing of the records so that there was a seamless you know, flow of music and then talk over the intro live. And, you know, hi, it's 12.15 on KICX. I'm John Murphy. And, you know, here's Fog Hat, you know, or whatever. And, but we also did the, the weekly farm report, the cattle sale. We did the train report. The time and temperature was sponsored by the bank. We read obituaries on Saturday mornings for the funeral home. I mean, it was just really all small, small town, small town radio. We had an open line where Monday through Friday between 8 and 9 a.m., people could call the radio station, be put on the air, and say, yeah, this is less. I got a lawnmower for sale. I'm asking $35 for it, but I'll take $25. What's your phone number? And people would give their phone numbers out over the radio. So that's where it kind of got started. And from there, I went to college, University of Nebraska, and I was in broadcasting journalism. And I got a job at a radio station down in Lincoln, and working part-time. And then I was in my second semester junior year. And I got a call from a radio station in Omaha. Now, Omaha was the big market, okay? This is the big city, Omaha, Nebraska. And I was offered afternoon drive. Somebody had heard me on the radio in Lincoln, and they offered me afternoon drive show on the number one rated top 40 radio station in Omaha. And I was 19 years old. Wow. And I, I just took a flyer. I said, how much are you going to pay me? And they said, we're going to pay you. Let's hold on. We're going to pay you $17,500 a year. What do you think, kid? That's fantastic. $17,500. Are you crazy? That's fantastic. So I called my parents up and I told them I was quitting college. They, they were not happy. Yeah. They were not happy at all. But I, I took the job and I'd never looked back. I never looked back. I told my dad, I remember I said, dad, there are some radio DJs who make $50,000 a year. And he goes, you think that's going to be you? You think you're going to make $50,000 a year? Because my dad never made $50,000 a year in his life. And he was a JCPenney store retail manager. I think the most he ever made was like $30,000, right? Within two years, I had made $50,000 a year. And I never looked back. So, but that I, I take that experience and I did that for 25 years, moved to big cities, Washington, D.C., up and down the West Coast, and I became a morning radio guy. Did that for a long time. I broadcast live from my own vasectomy. That's a story, but we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just stopped. After 25 years, I had a family, I was married, I lived in Los Angeles. And I got fired from my job. I got fired from my job. And the reason I got fired is because I told the program director, my boss, that he basically was an idiot and didn't know what he was doing. So my pride got me fired. I didn't want to chase radio jobs around the country anymore because I was in four, I was 40, had a family. So what am I going to do? Luckily, a good friend of mine had just started work at a production company in Hollywood that was doing all the theatrical film marketing campaigns for big movies. And he said, and then this is when the DVDs were starting to take over. And he goes, I need, you know, you've interviewed Paul McCartney and Elton John and all these big rock stars and stuff like that. I need somebody who can, you know, do interviews on camera with Steven Spielberg and 
all these big time actors for our marketing. And I need somebody who's got, you know, not scared and intimidated. I can just hire you on a case by case, project by project basis. Would you do that? And I said, well, yeah, sure. I need a job. I need to do something. So I, that's how I started to pivot into television. And then it led to, well, we need somebody to actually write and produce this whole piece for the studio. You want to give it a shot? Okay. And, and did, did that. And, and I, had to, I had a learning curve on that. I kind of spent at this company, it's called New Wave Entertainment. I kind of spent 12 years getting a master's degree in film. It's getting paid, but I had to learn a whole new skill set. But it's interesting because what I did in radio and started at, it informed this next opportunity. I took all those skills and then I applied them to that and then I grew some more. Love it. Yeah. And I guess it, and then after that job, the CBS opportunity came up on the Innovation Nation show. And I asked my former boss who hired me at this new wave entertainment company. I asked him, I said, because they were offering, you know, a lot less money. I hadn't worked up to a certain amount of, right. of film. Uh, I'd worked up to a certain amount of income level as a marketing specialist. And now they wanted to work on a Saturday morning educational series so the money just was different it's not like working in television in prime time and i asked my boss I, uh, my former boss i said i don't know there's like a kind of a big pay cut he said here's what you're going to do you're going to be working on a show that's you're not creating content to sell a movie you're creating content to educate people inform people you're going to change lives with this show you're going to get network credits television network credits you're not selling a product, you're selling, you know, education and to change somebody's life. You have to do it. You have to do it. And so I, I talked to my wife about it. I didn't have a job at the time and I did it. And, and within, in that first year of that show, I won my first Emmy for producing that show. And then the next year I won my second Emmy for writing which is the one that means the most to me because it's storytelling, right? you know? And I think I can look back now from the position, and we just, you know, season nine is airing of the show now, and season 10 is in the can, ready to go. We worked that far ahead. And so I can look back now and see that 17-year-old kid on that radio station in McCook, Nebraska, terrified sitting behind a microphone, but also excited and exhilarated and the adrenaline running through my body. I can look back at that moment in time and see how it informed everything I've done up until this very moment sitting across this microphone talking to you. Oh, chills up my spine. Let's shift over to Innovation Nation because you've won not just one but you've run won multiple Emmys. Yeah, three and two for writing, one for producing. The show was nominated 17 times for Emmy Awards. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, I see the picture of you holding the Emmy. It's in your hands. Mm -hmm. And we all marvel at it. But only you, only you know, and only your team knows what it took to win that mm -hmm. and be successful. And that's what I want to dive into. Okay. And so first is, you know, give us an understanding of organizational framework to create a show 
and produce an Emmy-winning show? Let's start with that. Like, what's the organizational framework so we can get an understanding of that? Well, the first organizational framework was four people sitting in a room staring at each other going, what are we going to do? <laughs> start up. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, the I got to give all credit to our executive producer and showrunner, Jim Lichtenstein. Jim Lichtenstein was a big managing editor of the big ABC affiliate in Chicago and the NBC affiliate in Chicago. And then he became a full-on producer on the Today Show. He was the lead producer, point producer for the Casey Anthony oh, yes. tri- murder case in Florida, which went on as a sensational case. But he, he, he got so good at ingratiating himself with Casey Anthony's family that he was actually became part of their family. They had to have him over for dinner and he would have dinner with Casey and he got access and he got to Casey's attorneys. And so he's been able to give all this content to, to the Today Show. And I only say that because it, it, it speaks to who he is as a leader. He is a man who's very compassionate, soft-spoken. He's not a bully. He doesn't, you know, throw his weight around. And he set the tone for the other three of us in that room. My co-producer, Stephanie Hamango, and then our line producer and associate producer at the time, Molly Perkins. So it was just four of us when we started this thing. Now we had an editor and we had, you know, an audio mixer and and that type of thing. Mo Rock, of course, was a host of the show right. from CBS Sunday Morning and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. So, but Mo was in New York. We were in Los Angeles. So just this brain trust. And he set the tone. In what, in what way did he set the tone? By not, even though he was the boss, he didn't lord it over us that he was the boss. He led by example. He never treated me any different. Like I never heard him once say in our 10 seasons of television, did he say, I'm the executive producer. I want it this way. He treated me and everybody below me in, in the production you know, ladder equally. We were all on the same team and we'd do lunch together and we'd share ideas. We'd spitball ideas together. And I think that I learned so much from him on how to treat other people. And he let us do our thing. He didn't micromanage me. He knew I could write. He knew I could tell a story. And I would turn in my scripts to him. And once in a while, he may, would give a little tweak, but he never, he never asked me to rewrite a script. Wow. We all have to work together and you all have to trust that this sound guy over here is going to capture it. This that this video person, this cinematographer is going to get the shot that I want. Now, before we start shooting, he and I discuss what kind of lens we're going to put on the camera, how many cameras we're going to use, how are we going to shoot this as an action shot? Are we going to try and get this, this new invention to work? It takes a little bit of planning, but you have to trust that they're going to get it. Yeah. You're going to trust that, you know, the, the curator from the museum that sponsors our show, the Henry Ford Museum, is going to be on point with the information that they're going to say. But it's ultimately, you have to trust the people who are part of the team. And that's the thing that we most people don't understand because we see that example of the director of the movie. Yeah. We, you know, for me, I always took it and said, hey, there's many ones like that for like Innovation Nation. And what you're telling me is it's, it's not like that. Right. It's about, hey, how do I lead by example? Yeah. How do I get others involved? How do we collaborate at speed with each other? 
in, in those types of things. No, absolutely. And, and I, I think in my experience, telling people how, how it should be done never, (laughs) never works out well. You know, you suggest or you say, it's my experience that. Um, You're laughing here. Do you have an experience where you became into a leadership role and, and maybe you did that or had a challenge with that? Yeah, I will be all, all, completely open about this. So when I first started on the show, first couple of seasons, the editor and I butted heads. Because I was came from the marketing side of producing. So I would sit in the edit bay with the editor and we would look at the thing frame by frame by frame. And I would call the shots. I'd call the cutaways. I'd call, you know, I want a hard cut. No, I want a fade. I want a crossfade. Or I want this music here. Or uh, this, this, you know, whatever. Sometimes I had to cut something down to a very specific time because it was airing on television and you only have literally down to the second to get something has to be two minutes and 29 seconds and 29 frames. So, so, but I would sit there and just do that with it. Now, some editors, especially in the marketing world and theatrical film marketing, they like that direction because there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of money at stake. You know, you're opening a movie and all that kind of thing. This editor working on this TV show had worked solo. He had always he had created his own you know style of working. He had created his own way of telling the stories and things like that. And he didn't want me in his edit bay. So he just wanted me to turn in a script and he would do a rough cut and then I could react to the rough cut and give notes. And so I was he would send back a rough cut and then he would correct my script. He'd make, I'd say and he wouldn't suggested he would say i'm going to correct blah 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 this is just better and i got really angry right and i you know and i complained to my boss about it and here's another good thing about my boss i complained to my boss thinking that okay he's the executive producer he can make an executive decision he goes no you gotta you gotta work it out with him love it you have to work it out with him and which back to my childhood real, real quickly that my dad said the same thing to me when i had to confront my bully I was bullied when I was a kid. I was fat and I was not, not athletic. I was just, you know, that age, that awkward age of 11 to 12 for me. Right. And I was picked on by this one guy. His name is, no, I won't say his name. His first name is Keith. I'll never forget his name. And I, you know, whined about it to my dad. My dad said, who was the next Navy guy? It's on the USS Texas Destroyer in World War II, looking for German U-boats in the Atlantic Ocean at the age of 15, by the way. So that 15-year-old dad of mine, <laughs> that, that strength that he got in the Navy as a kid in World War II, he said, son, I can't fight your battles. You're, you will, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you will confront your bully. Now, what I can do is I can prepare you for that moment. So I knew how to box. My dad knew how to box. So he taught me boxing lessons. Right. Taught me how to fight. He said, now, when you're ready to fight, you'll have some knowledge now. And I can't predict when that will be, but it'll it'll be sometime. And you know, roughly about a year. I took another year, but a year or so later, that time came, and I won that fight. I beat wow. my bully. So you, you had a, you had an experience early on yeah. where your father said, "Hey, I can't fight your fight for you, but I can empower you." Yes. And sounds like 
you know, you just brought that back up of like, hey, now you're with this editor. Right, correct. And, and the same thing's happening. Right. So, My, the, the, the exact same thing is happening. And I have to, f I have to be confrontational, which I've avoided for a lot of, because you, when you're an entertainer or you work in this business, you want to be liked. Right. You want, so I, I, that's one of my defects of character. And I, you know, I, we can talk about this a little bit in the podcast later is about you, you need to own who you are and work on those weak areas if you're going to be an effective leader. And you have to be able to admit that not only to yourself, but to others. And we'll get to that in just a second. Oh, I'll, I'll share it in this example here. So I had to go confront this editor and, and he couldn't have been nicer about it. And he said, I said, I, I really am offended that you're changing my scripts and not even, you know, suggesting that you change the script. You're just doing it. And, it, you know, I work hard on these scripts and, you know, <laughs> and I'm the producer of the piece. And so I kind of the ultimate responsibility falls with me. He goes, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm right. And I'll tell you why I'm right. Because your scripts are grammatically incorrect because I have a minor from Dartmouth. And, and I didn't, I quit college. I quit college and I had to admit that, you know what? He's right. I don't know grammar the way he knows grammar. And, you know, he wasn't rude about it. He was just, he was just saying, I just know this is correct because I have a minor in English from Dartmouth and I'm trying to help you to get better. He said that to me and I was able to luckily process that take that hit and it, it didn't, it stung, but I embraced it and I started working on it and started learning. And, and now to this day, he, he doesn't give me any more notes because I've become a better writer because of him. Oh, it's fantastic. That's awesome. So let's, you're talking about that. It takes a team. Now I watched an episode earlier this week of innovation nation and at the end, I counted up 62 people's names right. under 27 different categories. Now, every one of those is needed, and without every single one of them, there's going to be something that's going to happen in the show. They all have vastly different responsibilities and areas of expertise. So, give us an overview right now, because of what I watched, I didn't watch the one that had the, the commercials in it. So, okay. it was 20 minutes produced. So 20 minutes produced. 2137. 21 minutes and 37 seconds. seconds. Yes, that's yeah. what it was. So I watched, <laughs> I watched that. And again, so for, for one show, you know, when we start from where there's a concept of what we're thinking about, or even before that, mm -hmm. hey, we got to produce, how many episodes are produced in a season? Uh, we produce 26 episodes per season, 22 original episodes, and then we do four best ofs where we, we do combine, literally cherry pick the best stories from the first 22 and we do four best ofs. And what's interesting about Innovation Nation is that this is not all done in one studio. You actually go out to different parts of yeah. the United States and the world and you're gathering that. So it's a, it's a dispersed team mm -hmm. that initially starts. But just with one episode, Start with one episode from, hey, we don't even have a concept. Take us through all the way to finish and, and what 20, 20 minutes, because then we can compound that and say, what's the leadership that's needed to do one, but then how do you do a season? 
Right. So if you could take us through that. Well, we would sit down and we spitball ideas. And the executive producer, Jim Lichtenstein, who I mentioned before, he came up with the majority of the lead stories because of his experience as a managing news editor in you know New York and, and Chicago. He knew how to, to find great stories that he felt would fit the brand of the show, which is Innovation Nation. What is groundbreaking technology-wise? But it wasn't always about technology or new gadgets. Sometimes it was about art. Sometimes it was somebody who's just taking... We did a story of a, on a woman who had creative pies. But the way that she created these pies was just fantastic. So he came up, he would like throw these ideas out to us, or we could each pitch him ideas that we would find or see or read about. And then, so we do th four stories per half hour episode. Three of the stories are roughly four to four and a half minutes long. And then the fourth story is only two and a half minutes long. And that tended to be our international story. So the show is composed of Mo Rocca as the host doing an intro for every single story. That is shot on location at the Henry Ford Museum. Now, Mo Rocca, here's the big secret. You know, he's on the show 26 episodes a year, and then they repeat them. So 52 weeks out of the year, Mo Rocca's on television hosting Innovation Nation. Mo works about 10 days a year. We shoot all of his stuff at one time. We go to the Henry Ford Museum for one week shoot three times a year in July, September, and uh, December, where we shoot all of Mo's stand-ups and host wraps for this the show. Every, wow. Every single story. Wow. Yeah. And so- and we in every episode, we do one Henry Ford-centric story because they're the title sponsor of the show. So we do a story about one of their you know, displays or the history of something that they have on display there. But we would shoot all this with, with Mo. And so we'd shoot him out, you know, in July and all those, those, those times. And then me and the other producer, Stephanie Hamango, and our associate producers, Carly Plasic, and our uh, correspondents, Adam Yamaguchi, Ali Ward, Albert Lawrence, and Jax Tranquita, then we would chase down all the stories around the country where we'd have to fly. And so if I pitch a story to Jim, I'd say, I like, I like this story, Yellowstone Wolves. This is this great thing about how when they eradicated the wolves of Yellowstone, the ecosystem started crumbling. Mm. You remove the apex predator from an environment, there's a reason there's an apex predator. Things go wonky. And it really is an amazing story. So Jim said, yeah, it's a great story. Go produce that. So I had to call. So what you do, I have to call the forest, you know, the, the, the National Forest Service or the National Parks to get permission to go into Yellowstone and tell the story. I have to get somebody from the National Park Service, the guy who actually put the wolves, brought the wolves back to get permission to see if he'd be willing to do it. So you have to negotiate all those type of things. Then you have to find a camera crew who's available. We don't have a staff camera crew that travels with us. We hire local. So, some, so we have to hire somebody out of Salt Lake City, a camera guy, make sure he has the right cameras that we need, the right lenses that we need. We have to have an audio guy that can record the, the stuff on location for us. And they have to drive from Jack Salt Lake City and fly into Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Then we drive up to Yellowstone. And we have to coordinate all the hotels and the flights and all that kind of stuff. And then you normally spend four to six hours 
at that location, wherever we are, shooting the actual story. And then once the story is shot, we fly back home, we in, uh, ingest all of that media, all the, the film footage or the actual the video footage and the audio and all that stuff into our editing system. It gets all strung together by a, an assistant editor. Then it's output for transcription, so it turns into a written transcript of what was discussed. And that's where I have to go through 26, 50 pages of transcript notes and start crafting the story out of the sound bites. Wow. So the first piece is is you know coordinating the crew. Yes. Because there's a sounds like there's a probably a checklist that you have to say, yeah, hey, we gotta make sure the crew's there. Cause if you miss something, right, or the battery's not working, you know, you can't you can't go like, hey, let's reshoot it right now. You gotta go back. Yeah, there's no going back. Going back, right? So we don't have we're we're not a, a prime time you know, show. We are a Saturday morning show with a small budget. I mean, we really have a small budget. And so there is no going back. Right. So the preparation for that yeah, and the coordination and communication that has to happen, it sounds like it needs to be at its highest, highest level. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and there's, and we have, when we're shooting in Detroit, we have actually four crews working at the same time. We have Moe's crew with the big jib arm camera, shooting all of the stand-ups at all of the different locations around the museum. So that crew of 30 is moving around. I have my own crew because I'm doing my own stories at the Henry Ford. Right. Stephanie Hamango, the other producer who works on it, she has her own crew doing her own stories. And then Carly Plasic has her own crew. She's a newer producer. And she's doing, and Robin Green, I forgot to mention Robin. Robin is doing stories too. So you have multiple crews working simultaneously three weeks out of the year, just capturing all the Henry Ford stuff. And then we go back out and then travel to do all the other, other stories. So I have a question for you. Those four, when all of the media comes back, yeah, you're up in Yellowstone, someone else is in Miami, yeah, someone else is in Texas doing these, it all comes back. Is there a common group that you have or do you get your own specific editor um, that works with you or does, or is there a team that then starts working on all of them? We have an associate, couple of associate editors or assistant editors who ingest all the media and separate it all out between all the other crews. So I have my own, you know, editor who takes care of all my stuff. And then Stephanie has her editor and that type of thing. But there's only one editor. There's only one (laughs) editor that edits every single story and then edits the entire show together. Yeah. And then after that, the review of it, the approval of it, the delivery, take us through that. It goes through a lot of uh, approvals. So I turn in a rough cut of my segment to our executive producer, Jim Lichtenstein. He'll give me his notes. I'll go back and change anything that he feels needs to be tweaked or cut or edited. He's been very good for me. I very... Get very, very few notes from him. And because he, again, it's the trust. He says, this is a good story. I trust you to do it. And, you know, so it's very, very minimal notes. So then he approves my segment. And then he goes and approves the other three segments for that show. And then he turns, and, and then he turns all those segments back to Andy, our editor. And then Andy starts building out the show. And then um, 
So, oh, and the segments do have to get approval from the Henry Ford segments have to get approval from the Henry Ford. So he sends those segments to the Henry Ford, make sure the curators are happy that, that they we've told the story correctly. They approve it. And then they take those four segments. He hands them back to Andy, our editor. And then Andy starts adding in uh, Mo Rocca's host wraps and starts building out the show. Once the show is built out, then there's an, a round of notes that we all look at as producers, and we have to cut the show to time. So we only get 21 minutes and 37 seconds, and many times we have to cut two to three minutes out of the show. Is this you fighting with each other? And that's where zone? that's this where is- that's where it gets a little painful sometimes because you work really hard on the story, and then all of a sudden, 45 seconds has gone out of it. You know, it's and like, that's the best part. I, that's, that's the best part. It's hard. Story. Yeah, yeah, but it's necessary because we have to hit the time. And the executive producer does his best to be judicious, you know, to be fair. But if there's one story that, you know, is really impactful, that has a, like, like the Yellowstone story, we won the Emmy for that, for writing on that story. But there's another one that's maybe, you know, it's kind of a fluffy piece. He'll try and take it out of the fluffy piece and leave, you know, the more of the important story, you know, intact as possible. So then once it's cut to time, then we have to send it to, S&P, Standards and Practices, to make sure that there's nothing inappropriate for Saturday morning. The guidelines for children's programming on Saturday mornings is pretty intense. And this is a true story. I had to edit out a dead mosquito through a microscope uh, shot that I had in one of my stories because can't show any dead things on Saturday morning television. There was a show right afterwards with a cartoon with a mosquito in it. And it it would have triggered the... (laughs) So, and that's one of those things. It's like it sounds ridiculous, yeah. But it's like, no, that's a policy. Even, I said it's a pass. I mean, I fought for this. Like, it's a mosquito, and we were doing a story on micro windmills, and we were comparing the size of a micro windmill that would go inside a phone that you could self charge the phone, and next to, you know, we were doing a comparison: uh, the mosquito and a micro windmill, and they made me take out the mosquito because it was dead. Wow. So we have to go through the standards and practices. And sometimes that's, we have some fights there. We do have some fights there. And our ex- executive producer does step up to the plate and, and push back. And then we have to go to the network at CBS and they have to approve it, make sure it's all good. They very rarely give notes. They're pretty good about it. They give us one or two once in a while, but they're mostly really great. And then we go to finishing, and finishing is upresing all the video to the highest quality. We do a color correction, and then we do a final audio mix, and we all sit and you know listen to the audio mix, and we adjust the music, and we tighten up things, and then we all watch the show and give our blessing, and then we send it off out into the world. Yeah, and that's just one show. That's just one show, yeah. Have you or the team tracked number of hours to produce from start a, a one twenty minute and thirty seven second show. What's the number of hours? And if you if you don't know, what do you, what do you what do you think it would be? Yeah, there's hundreds of hours. There's just hundreds and hundreds of hours. Touch points, right? There's kind of a rule of thumb in television production. It's like you shoot one hour of raw footage for every minute of screen time. So if so, I think there'd be a, a a fairly interesting correlation that a 21 minute and 37 second show all in probably has, I'm going to say 210 hours behind it. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times 
we talk about really matrix, more of a matrixed organization versus a hierarchy organization. Mm-hmm. And a matrix organization wins because it's adaptable. Yes. Yeah. And so say the editor's not working on your thing and you're expecting something else. How are you able to shift and adjust, et cetera? Was that present? Did you see more uh, matrix or more hierarchy um, as it related to Innovation Nation? Oh, absolutely matrix. The success of the show is because of that matrix structure and the policy of hiring good people and the policy of hiring people who work well with others and are willing to bend and not are not break. You know what I'm saying? Because things are going to change. Schedules are going to change. You're not always going to get your way with, you know, when it comes to editing out, you know, I've turned off a four minute piece, but man, I got to take 15 seconds out of here. Oh, it's my favorite 15 seconds. As you mentioned, you know, those, those are painful, but you just have to do it and not become a, a big jerk about it. Right. What, what do you, you, you may, might've touched upon it already. To have that matrixed organization and saying, hey, that was the success of it, what were the key things that you did as a leader to help facilitate that matrixed organization? And what was successful about setting that up, that matrix organization? Well, knowing and admitting that I don't have all the answers all the time and that I need, I need to ask for help and I need to ask people who might even be in job positions below me to go, you know what? I don't understand, especially, you know, our producer and, you know, kind of project management producer, her name is Molly Perkins, 20, I think she just turned 28 years old. She came on the show and she's really young. And, but this girl, the minute she walked in the room, I knew she was smarter than me. I just knew it. I could feel it. I could, she's just brilliant. Now she has no, she has no desire to be a creative producer. She doesn't want to write stories. She doesn't want to necessarily shoot stories, but project management, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure all the licenses are in place, all the clearances are in place, booking the crews and all that kind of stuff. She could, the show, in fact, our executive producer even says, she's the real executive producer of the show. (laughs) She says, don't ask me, ask Molly. If Molly says it's okay, it's okay with me. I mean, but to ask this young kid who's 25 years younger than me, go, I don't know this. Can you help me with this? And not be, feel stupid or embarrassed or put or to present myself like I do know. You got to be authentic and just say, I don't know. Did you ever have a time in your life where that would have been an embarrassment yes. to you? Yes. Can you tell me about when that changed? Was it was it that earlier story or, or when did that change where you said, hey, it, it's okay for me not to know? I think it was during my radio days, I had, I kind of wear this as a badge of honor now, but I was fired in Washington, D.C. I had a morning show in Washington, D.C., and I was there for about two and a half years. And I got fired, not because I was bad or anything, but I got fired because Howard Stern, a guy by the name of Mel Carmazon, was just starting to syndicate Howard Stern and and this station that they bought and they were going to put Howard Stern. So I was, I was fired to make way for Howard Stern (laughs) and I was fired by Mel Carmazon and I felt that's a badge of honor, you know? So from there, I went to Portland, Oregon and I I went to, I I came in to a station called Z100 and this station was 
the number one station in Portland, and it was only been on the air for two years. They signed on in 1984. Gary Bryan was the program director and morning show host. Gary and I are still really, really good friends today. And um, and the, the show was a monster. His morning show was a monster. The radio station was a monster. And it was a they called it a morning zoo. So it was a, a unit, you know, Gary was the host, but he had three or four of the people in the studio contributing to the studio. And I was a solo act. And I came into this position of this number one rated station. And it was a fight between me and the, the other people, because I was trying to call all the shots and they had their own rhythm going with this other guy. And I, I almost got fired six months in. Because I wasn't playing well with others. I was trying to be the smartest guy in the room, make all the final decisions, try to be the funniest guy in the room. And I wasn't. There was plenty of talented people who had already established that. And I was trying to change it back to my, I was trying to control it. Right. And I was failing. And I was losing the support of my troops, so to speak, the people that I was trying to lead. I was not leading them. And finally, I had to have this come to Jesus meeting with this other guy. Uh, his name is Dan, Dan Clark. And he said, I'm just going to tell you straight. It's not working. We have, you, you, have, you were gifted this great opportunity and it's not working because you are trying to be everything and you can't. And again, another hard lesson. I somebody had to speak the truth to me, and I. The good thing that I take away from that is that at least. I was feeling it too, but I was I was in denial about it. I was feeling the, the pressure inside my gut. I had, you know, I wasn't sleepless nights. I was anxious because that's how your body reacts when things aren't authentic. And but to my to my credit. I was willing to listen. And again, it hurt. It hurt to hear the truth. It didn't feel good that I didn't, didn't feel good that I didn't have every answer. It didn't feel good that I wasn't the funniest guy. It didn't feel good that I wasn't leading these people. And they weren't really ready to follow me into battle, so to speak. And I told them, okay, well, what am I good at? You know, what, what, where do you see me leading? Did you ask him that? Yeah. So where, what am I good at? He goes, Oh, you're great on the air and leading the, and driving the show and setting up what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. And you have great ideas. You have great ideas, but you don't necessarily know how to produce them all. You know, I can produce them. You know, you don't have to produce everything. You know how to hand off really well. You know how to, you know how once we're on the air and doing the show and to doing the handoffs and stuff, you're just great at that. And you have a great voice and you know how to run the show. So I said, okay, that's what I'll just focus on. And, and then everything changed. We started getting along. We started having number one rated books. And I got, you know, three and a half, I got tons of, the show just evolved. It even got stronger. And I started getting job offers from other big cities and things like that. And in fact, I did take some jobs. It came down to San Diego. I got a job, a big job in San Diego. Then went to Los Angeles from there. And then... After I got fired in Los Angeles, that station, Z100, called me back. And I went back and we did a second, a whole four-year second run. It was very, very successful. That's fantastic. But I had to, you know, I had to, you know, and I look at Dan Clark as a mentor. 
of mine because he told me the truth. And I think mentors, if you are a mentor, if you are going to be a leader, you have to be tell the truth. You have to deliver some hard news, but do it in a way that's not humiliating to the person. Do it with love and kindness. And, you know, you invested in their success as well as yours. That was great. Let's shift over. We, we talk a little bit about personal readiness, personal readiness to be able to be able to do the job that you're asked to do. We also talk about then being and having collective readiness. So personal readiness, but then collective readiness of the team to make sure that the mission gets accomplished. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about how that showed up on the show or on the set or maybe post-production. And what did you do to foster that personal readiness and maybe collective readiness? Well, I think it's it goes back to what your whole motto is or your mission statement is, or one of them, I think, from Lead With Purpose that I've seen is, didn't you say something like, in a lot of companies, 80% of the people aren't sure what the direction of the company is? Is it that high? Yes. That's That's an anathema for television production. That's an anathema for a show like Innovation Nation. Would, so you're saying it would never. So how did you do that? How did you make sure that everybody understood that? You just know that, okay, the name of the show is Innovation Nation. So everything we talk about has to be innovative and new and fresh in some way. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be a gadget. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a new piece of software. It can be pie. So that was our mission statement for from, from day one. And everything went through that filter. Everything went through that filter. Love it. That's how you, that's how. You, so, yeah, I mean, I'm really shocked that in your, in your line of work and being a consultant and turnaround guy, that so many, that high percentage of people aren't in line with the statement of the company, mission statement of the company. Yeah. It's, it was shocking to me because when I came out of the Navy, you know, the, the, the saying that we had is we either all come to the surface or no one does. Wow. Yeah. That's what bound us together. Yeah. And, sure. and we had this connection to if we weren't where we were, which I can't tell you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> but if we weren't where we were, something bad might happen to our country. Like this bound us together. And so for me, it was a, it was a challenge when I came to corporate America. You know, 80% of people don't know how what they do today connects to making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's a challenge. Because you asked me, you know, what you personally and collectively, you know, did. So collectively, it was innovation. What is innovative, new, and pushing art, technology, science, STEM forward? That was the kind of the mission statement of the show. For me personally, and this was what trumps the Emmy for me, my guiding, my, my guide, let me, ah, edit. My guiding North Star for this show was always, I want to create a segment on the show or a, a series of shows or build a fan base that some kid watching our show gets so inspired and jumps into that journey of innovation and creation and, and becomes an inventor that he actually invents something that ends up in the Henry Ford Museum, which is our sponsor. Oh, it's awesome. 
And I, I firmly believe to this day that we've, because our show is syndicated in 60, I'm sorry, 80 countries around the world with, a, with, a, with an available audience of about 60 million people, plus the 10 seasons here in the United States, I know for a fact some kid somewhere has watched our show and has been moved into action to put them on the path that we're going to hear of some great science guy 20 years from now, 25 years from now, who will say in an interview, yeah, I was watching this Innovation Nation show and it, I thought that was really cool. And I thought that's what I want to do. That's what it means to me. That's, what, that's the most important thing to me, that I would affect change into a direction of some person to change their lives that would better the world. So I love that personal readiness that mm-hmm. aligns with the collective readiness. Yeah. And sounds like you were able to do that um, with all the people that were working on Innovation Nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I would like you to share with us, you know, you've been working on Innovation Nation for, what is it, nine seasons? Yeah. Now? Nine, nine years, 10 seasons. 10 seasons. So there was a pre-COVID Innovation Nation team that delivered. Yeah. COVID hits. Mm-hmm. How did that impact your team? What are the things you did as leaders to make sure that you could still deliver what you needed to deliver, um, but still keep people you know, connected? Well, we were very, very lucky in that we started the show in 2014, COVID, and the lockdowns didn't happen until the spring of 2020. So we had you know, a good six years of building the machine, right? We had built a, a workflow pattern. We had got to know one another. Trust was there. All we had to do was just adapt because the infrastructure and the life force behind Innovation Nation was in place and active and functioning on all cylinders. So we had we stopped production for about three months when the worst of the lockdowns were happening and people were just, you know, the unknown was out there, right? Right. And but Television consumption is a is a is a is a taskmaster that needs to be is a beast that needs to be fed. So pretty soon we got to keep the shows back on the air. So we got to keep producing shows. So we just had to figure out a different way to work, and that was we started working remotely. Were you mostly in the, in the office and before that? Yeah, we all worked together. Right. Well, yeah. Okay. So we I would you know we would write our stories remotely. We would review cuts remotely. We would do Zoom calls and things like that and watch the show. We would exchange emails or just give our uh, email feedback individually to the editor. So, But the trust was always there because we had that bond. That bond had been established and was well-honed, and we were able to keep going with that. You know, we had to use protocol solutions, shooting the show, everybody had to wear masks. We had to shoot, you know, we all had to show proof of vaccinations and things like that. The crew had to be, you know, vetted for vaccinations and everybody had to be six feet apart. So you will see, you know, from about 220 episodes from 2020 onward, you know, the people in a, in a space, they're noticeably far apart. <laughs> you know? Got the wide angle yeah, lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, exactly right. We got a 15 millimeter lens on this shot and the and the hosts are six to eight feet apart and there's this little invention in the middle and they're talking about it. So it does, a li- it, it looks a little awkward at times, you know, but it is what it is. And people got used to it because they understood. So what would you say was the 
key one, maybe two things that was able, you were able to navigate through that? I think it was just being available and checking in with people. Are you okay? Are you, do you need any help with anything? Can I pick up any slack for you? Is there anything else I could be doing to help make this easier for you because you're working remotely? I think it's, it was being aware that other people had needs that I needed to be cognizant of and put those needs before my own sometimes just because we are working remotely. I can't read minds. I got to check in and be proactively checking in and making sure that they're, that they have everything they need for me to fully, you know, move the show forward. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like you increased communication yeah. uh, during that time. Of course. Yeah. yeah. We've seen, we saw a lot of companies do that. We would, you know, share, Hey, on a one, um, on a all hands meeting, that we ask CEOs to have with their entire company, we ask them to have that once a month. When COVID hit, we recommended they go to once a week. Right. Just because nature abhors a vacuum. Yes. And so does a, so does a mind. <laughs> when there's a vacuum in the mind, we just fill it with the worst of the things yeah. that, that come in. So sounds like you were able to increase the frequency of communication with that. And it sounds like you, you'd said it earlier, the, the 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 disruption of COVID and you being successful and and helping with the team and leading Innovation Nation, it, it wasn't done in March of 2020. It started in 2014. Right. If you can forge those bonds, and they don't have to be best friend bonds necessarily, but trust. You know this person is knows the mission statement of the company. You know this person is you know uh when the stuff hits the fan they they got your back and they're they got the company's back and they're gonna put in the extra effort to make it work and make it succeed then you know you've got a real really uh, really good team it's awesome i have a couple more questions okay what is your go-to leadership tool that you use daily and it doesn't have to be anything really complex john mm -hmm. What's your go-to leadership to daily that helps you and your team be successful? I would say honesty and authenticity, just being honest. You know, just be, <laughs> just be honest. I don't know that answer. I don't know how to solve that problem. Can, we, can you help me solve this problem? I'm having trouble getting connected or, f or researching this particular company and you know, that I want to do a story on any ideas and how to do it you know back channel it you know I think it's just being honest and authentic and being vulnerable enough to say I don't have all the answers today do you have any <laughs> answers that's such a powerful simple tool yeah because what we show people is that we're a human being too yeah because a lot of times they you know our people put us on a pedestal like, hey, going to know every single answer. And we say we don't know and we ask for help. Right. I think it's a great example for them to say, I don't know, and I'm going to ask for help. And if John's going to do it and feel comfortable doing it, then if I do it, someone's not going to say, hey, you're, that's really stupid. Right. Yeah. I think being vulnerable and, and humble is the, is the key because I've had people come up to me or email me and said, you know, I'm really, you know, I didn't want to bother you. You know, you're an Emmy winning producer and all this kind of stuff. And it's like that doesn't mean anything if you want to ask me a question ask me a question it's okay i'm here to help you know and i always remember 
how many people helped me? The editor who told me I needed to brush up my grammar. The radio guy who said, you're not the funniest, smartest guy in the room, but you do this really, really well. Those were all mentors that guided me and willingly did so with kindness and grace. And I want to be able to pass that along to people coming up in this business. And if anybody wants to ask me a question, they can. It doesn't matter how many Emmys I have. It doesn't matter. What matters is that people have been good to me and I want to be good to other people. Love it. What's the one thing that someone can do that's listening right now? What's one thing that someone can do to surface the leader within them? Critical self-examination. Because we, you know, when we point the fingers out, there's three fingers always pointing back at us. And when you start pointing, you know, if your career is not going the right way or your, you know, um, productivity level within your company is not going the way that you hope you're not getting the promotions you want you're not whatever instead of pointing the finger out it's like oh that hr person doesn't like me this boss is an idiot that blah 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 that's when you really need to stop and you really need to go okay what's my part in all this why am i reacting this way why do i have these feelings what what's going on with me critical self-examination rigorous honesty is the key to not only peace of mind, but also the key to success, I think. Being willing to know what you're good at and know what you're not good at and to own it. Well, fantastic. All right. So, John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insights today into an industry that I didn't know really anything about. Mm. It was fantastic. And, you know, you've really helped us to take a look at the television industry and what you do and, and surfacing leaders inside of that. And, you know, our hope is that, you know, people can see that there's a lot of common things that are happening inside of your world and what right. you do and um, how people can take that and, and bring it to their own lives. Um, you've had a tremendously remarkable career. Uh, you've definitely inspired us today. Now, if you'd like to follow John Moore and learn more. Um, you can tune into Across the Dynaverse. Uh, new episodes are available every single week. And you can find that by going to www.thedinerverse.com. And then you can also tune into um, Henry Ford's Innovation Nation. It airs Saturday mornings on CBS. That's correct. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.